So this is the piece that I made that was, that was commissioned by the museum for this exhibition. And um, I'm a record collector. Um, and uh, with, I'm particularly interested in music that was made outside of the center, outside of some sort of um, commercial mainstream, more or less, for lack of a better term. So that could be like the global explosion of psychedelic rock. And there's these incredible manifestations of psychedelic rock in the late 60s and early 70s in places like Turkey or Brazil, places where there's oppressive cultural regimes that make the rebellious impulse of rock and roll or psychedelic rock um, that much more vital, um, that much more acute. And especially for me as, as, a, as a listener, as a consumer, that's, that's really what, I'm, that's what I want out of music. Uh, for me, music is something that really fuels my studio. And I have a really beautiful, um, complex relationship to music um, via, um, via, via biographical sources. Um, my father and, and, and other members of my family and so on and so forth. Um, I've done some record covers for some artists that were a result of me admiring those artists uh, more than having any interest in any kind of commercial design record cover enterprise. Um, and coincidentally, my father also did these covers for Atlantic Records in the early 60s for John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman, among others. Um, and he, he was somebody who was a really avid listener as well. Um, his father actually was a principal tenor at the, um, the, the, the New York Metropolitan Opera um, from the 20s through the 50s. Um, so that's a little preface that, that my interest in um, more idiosyncratic or eclectic or non-mainstream musical sources, both present and, and, and more often past, um, because the majority of my record collecting is looking at, at specific places and times, um, whether it's like uh, the early 80s in the, the, the um, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, um, and the, the go-go and modern funk and soul that was happening there at the time, um, or, or, you know, like I said, global psychedelic rock. Um, and so by definition, in a way, because of my interests, somebody like Amy Winehouse is not on my radar. Um, because I'm not interested in celebrity. Um, I'm not interested in advertising um, so much, except for idle curiosity. Um, but I'm, I'm not interested in the kind of um, weird machine which, um, you know, money um, that, that was ultimately probably a principal cause of, of Amy Winehouse's death. Um, and you know, I can concede that she has interesting aspects as, as, an, as an artist um, or um, somebody who has an emotional life um, or a need to express themselves and so on. So what I wanted to do with these paintings was, was take her story as a symbolic story and put it into a, a kind of larger frame um, that is not just personally relevant, but like deeply personally vital to me as a person and as an artist. So that I could express myself with, with you know, the, the, the greatest of emphasis. Um, so that I could, uh, you know, my goal all the time is to make stories that make me feel something. 
I have this belief that there's only one reader, there's, a, there's only one principal reader, and that's the writer. Because when you're writing, there is no other reader. And so the litmus for a writer is whether or not their story moves them, or whether my story moves me. And it's the only litmus that's available to me. Um, and it's, it's, it's one that I put a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of faith in, um, because I believe in my own, um, my own enthusiasm for culture. Um, and my own um, cultivated mind, or eye, or ear, or nose. So I see these paintings here as, like a, as, as a historical fiction, um, where there's these um, various threads, various biographies, angling at, at, at interceding trajectories. And I've imbued those narratives with um, with, with source material or reference, um, which is ultimately valuable to me. Amy Winehouse takes her musical character from the pantheon of black American music. And that um, is, is, a, is a pantheon that I have an enormous amount of regard and respect and enthusiasm for. So it was very easy in a way for me to see that Amy Winehouse saying that her, one of her first influences was Thelonious Monk, which I, I can only imagine in some way um, triggered her to understand that, that, um, that, that art is something where anything can happen at any moment. Because that's the kind of figure that Thelonious Monk is. He has this kind of quintessential um, you know, um, uh, enigmatic quality. Um, and he's part of a tradition that is less commonly known called the Harlem Stride Piano, which is a musical idiom. Um, I don't know, from the 20s or something, I'm not sure, 30s. Um, and so I, I, I have this smoking dog figure that has recurred um, as a character within my work for a while. Um, I do truck with a lot of characters. None of them have names, except for this guy, actually, the proverbial smoking dog gave him, named himself at a certain point. Um, but, but by and large, though I'm, I spend a lot of time making characters, I'm never really interested in giving them any kind of fixed identity. I'd rather have them be ambiguous or nebulous and have a kind of life that exists outside of my frame, um, which is an enormous sort of like fundamental principle of painting, that you create something that is a, 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 a framed-in view of something larger than that frame. I see that as like a, um, a, a, a traditional, um, you know, whatever it is, like touchstone of, of painting. Um, just like never use a tube out of the, never use a color out of the tube. Sort of like a basic thing. Um, so I spend a lot of time mixing colors. So this character here, um, with his stogie in the teeth, um, cornered eyes, looking behind him, playing piano. Is, is an image that kind of came together before I saw this image of famous stride pianist Willie the Lion Smith, predecessor to Thelonious Monk, wearing a bowler hat, stogie in his teeth. You can just look him up and you'll see it. It's a great photo. Um, so I, I can obviously I can go off on many different tangents, um, so it makes staying focused a little confusing, to be honest with you. 
So you can feel free to interrupt me or ask questions or, or anything like that. Um, I, can, I could talk here all day, honestly, about things that are important to me. Um, which is to say, one of those things would be my daughters. I have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, and they're both beautiful musicians, um, play the violin and the piano. And um, one of the inspirations for this particular part of this piece, this painting, was um, seeing, um, they go to the Waldorf School, which is over in Pacific Heights, and they did a little um, music presentation night for the, sort of like the upper grades, sixth, seventh, eighths, I think. My, so my older daughter didn't participate that year, even though she's an incredible piano player and singer. Um, but seeing these girls up on stage, you know, her, her social milieu at 12 years old um, is something that, that I have a lot of regard for, to see these beautiful individuals transforming from a child stage to a young adult kind of stage. And to see them up there performing with this spotlight and this curtain behind was um, an incredibly evocative image. And ever since I was invited to participate in this, in this exhibition, I had been thinking of this stage. And the stage is a, is a fantastic setting, of course, right? Because there's side stage and there's beneath the stage, and it is itself an artifice. And what better role to play as a storyteller than one where you frame something within a frame? You know, so that you call attention to the fact that, well, this is a story now. And, and that goes back to something that Joseph Albers, who my father studied with at Yale in the 1950s, says about art, which is that it should never be just one thing. It should always function on multiple levels simultaneously. And so casting off in multiple directions at once, for me, is the most generous and exciting thing that I can imagine. Uh, I'm not a minimalist. So down underneath this, you know, this underneath part of the stage down here is a direct reference to Max Beckman, speaking of the stage. And um, his, he has these series of triptychs which depict these stage scenes um, that are some of the most beautiful paintings I've ever seen, and ones that I grew up with because my dad worked as a museum guard at the Harvard Art Museums, and um, it's not the fog. I don't remember which one it is. Maybe it is the fog. Um, has a, a bunch of those paintings, including that famous one where he's in a tux holding that cigarette, which was just always such an important painting for me as a child. Um, so here are these characters here. There's one with a sword, one with a crown, one's kneeling. I don't know who, what are they doing? I don't know. And that kind of ambiguity is sort of a stock and trade for me because I want to create things that are open-ended, perpetually open-ended, because I know that our, all of us are programmed to be reading things all the time, selectively reading things, filtering things out, organizing, and presenting ourselves with a story on a day-to-day -day basis of who we are, who we aren't, <laughs> what we're a part of, and what's happening out here, and how do we navigate it safely. So if I can create a sort of symbol that is like an open-ended sign, it's like a double entendre. You know, and language itself is such a um, preternaturally, such an in in intrinsically slippery medium, form of communication. So much opportunity for miscommunication, <laughs> confusion, but also there's these things like multiple entendres or double entendres, which often form the basis of jokes in whatever language we're talking about. So, you know, there's artists who I admire who I, I can, in, they're, they're very idiosyncratic. It takes a while, in a way, to sort of get through their idiosyncrasy, to have a literate read of what they're doing. And, 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 one of, and one of the ways I can identify those artists that come to mind are like they're telling themselves a bunch of in-jokes perpetually. You know, they're just trying to make themselves laugh. 
the, on top of the piano. I wasn't sure what, the, what image I wanted to portray in this frame, but I, I knew I wanted there to be this kind of reference to frames within frames, within frames in a very greedy, generous kind of way. Um, and so it's that particular piece I had thought, you know, oh, it should be a father and daughter kind of thing, referencing Winehouse and her father, me and my daughters. And somewhere along the way, um, my father's sketchbook from 1968 was around, and, and, and he, he made this work in the late, mid and late 60s that was part of this hard edge op art movement um, that Frank Stell is sort of the most famous um, um, representative of. Um, and, and so I'm making direct reference to, to this particular drawing in that sketchbook, um, in that image. And then there's this TV over there, which is a great thing for me to portray personally, having grown up in the 1970s and 80s as this kind of TV, um, the early form of cable TV as well, and like things like VHF and UHF, which some people may remember. Um, and obviously the, 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 the television cabinets themselves having those kind of analog personalities that we now regard so romantically or nostalgically. And on the TV there is, is a depiction of this video that I'm, I'm so tickled to put in a museum, to put this character, Robert Wyatt, the English musician Robert Wyatt, um, most famously, though not so famously in certain circles, of the group Soft Machine, which is a central part of this um, particular, st particular uh, milieu that, that's called the Canterbury scene, because it's Canterbury, England. Um, Robert Wyatt, of course, totally refutes that label. Um, and he was a, he's a, a drummer and a singer, um, which is something that I hold a lot of romantic regard for, this idea of someone who drums, who has that kind of rhythmic capacity, and who also sings. As an artist, he's actually strangely similar to Winehouse because he had an incredible regard for jazz, um, mostly from the 1940s idioms that, that he was present for, 40s, maybe 50s, uh, or certainly 50s, and then um, pop music. He crafted these incredible, incredible pop songs, uh, like the God Song, Signed Curtain, these just unbelievable songs, um, paramounts of pop songwriting. And he was able to do both things at once, realize a jazz idiom and realize a pop song idiom on the, on the same albums, not in, sometimes in the same songs, where it could drift from one form to another. Um, so there's incredible footage of him, 1972 French television, footage of the festival Rock and Stock um, that he's performing with, with his group after Soft Machine called Matching Mole. He was kind of drubbed out of his own group Soft Machine because they were going towards Prog rock, which is noodly, sometimes called math rock, even as in a later form. And Wyatt wasn't so keen on that kind of noodly technicality stuff. He still wanted the pop song in there, and there wasn't room for the pop song anymore. In fact, even the jazz part was maybe getting a little overdone. And um, so he, he, went, he, he was drubbed out of his own group and started this group that he called Matching Mole. He's being British, he, he also summered in France, spoke French. You hear him speak French on that video. And matching mole in French is matching mole, soft machine. So he's making a joke, of course, to himself. That has a dark undercurrent, just 
some of our favorite kinds of jokes. So he does a lot of scatting in this, in this video where he's improvising on a song that he's written, but it has this extended scatting where he's drumming and, and, and improvised singing at the same time. It's remarkable. And so I put it in the context of this scene where there might be this girl there in England. This is why there's a packet of fags on the TV. Um, where this footage might be playing, where this French television footage might be playing in 1972. And there's this character there. And, um, and that's that. Um, and this up there, I think I should explain that a little bit. Um, it's, you know, it's basically like the walk of death, you know? It's like, a, it's like some reference to the fact that, the, um, that, that we're mortal and that um, some, you know, we're here for a time and then we're somewhere else perhaps or, or nowhere else or everywhere else. And, um, you know, I'm an alcoholic. Amy Winehouse was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. Um, I, I think he probably died of, of smoking and drinking, though really he died of a poor medical system um, in this country of all places. And so there's a lot of references to my dad in my work. And, and sadly, I was just thinking the other day how kind of terrible it is that it's now been so many years since he died in 2006. And I no longer have that kind of um, unbelievably salient, graspable feeling of his presence with me and that loss that creates that presence. Uh, so again, you know, it's like the joy and sorrow are, are inexorable. And this painting is also referencing my own paintings from um, 1992 and three, which is kind of a while ago. Uh, but oil paintings that I was making back then looked a bit like this and had all of this light in it and all of this um, looseness and ambiguity. And as an artist, for me personally, one of my major goals is to cast back to my earliest impulses, to my earliest forms of working because I see, I, I can see, I can identify, even logically, looking back, I can identify logically that that's the best things I've ever made. And you know, that's why there's all these record albums by first record albums, first singles. Anybody know the Human League? You know? And anybody heard their first single? It's mind-blowing and so different from their new wave pop music that followed. It's dark and synthy. Um, you know, or any number of, you know, of these first records. It's just incredible to me, music as a, as a form, you know? Um, the way that it allows for the, all these teenagers to make these documents that persist year after year after year, forever. And Winehouse, I guess, is one of those, even though I don't regard her, except symbolically. <laughs>